Hello everyone, welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode is with Chris Richards. Chris writes about music for the Washington Post, which is one of the best jobs you could have when it comes to writing about music. This is his fourth time on the show, uh, his first time since the end of February. He was on our February 29th live show. If you did not come to that show and you got on the podcast feed, that was released in March, on March 6th. Since March 6th, uh, this country... The world has been ravaged by COVID-19, and that's why we have a Patreon, because things aren't going well. Chris is a huge Fugazi fan, so if you're a Fugazi fan, I think the right thing for you to do is to consider giving us $5 a month on every, uh, just because, because that's what Fugazi would do, and don't you want to be like Fugazi? You want to set a good example for your Fugazi fans, right? Anyways, uh, I do enjoy Chris enjoy him that's a weird thing to say i enjoy our conversations together here's chris richards i'm gonna start with you like i start with everyone else how has your life been altered since COVID 19 uh probably as dramatically and as boringly as everyone else right it's I don't so know. weird well it feels so extreme and also so bland at the same time right uh my wife is very pregnant we're expecting our second child in about five weeks. So our hyper quarantine style has Mm -hmm. been like harrowing. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's like, you just have to take a deep breath with your mask on at the grocery, at the grocery store and say, this is okay. Like I'm just at the grocery store. No one's coming up and licking my face right now. Like it's going to be all right. I just got to get these, you know, these dozen eggs and this milk and get out of here. It's going to be all right. So it's, it's such a weird time because time feels fast and slow at the same time and it also feels perilous and boring at the same time. Your other child is of the age where they will probably remember this. Is that correct? I don't know. She's two and a half and for her, this has been like a 200 day weekend. She's loving okay. it. Like okay. it's like, it's like all day with mom and dad. This is a blast. So, so far she's having fun. Um, we're starting to get worried that, you know, she hasn't seen other children aside from her cousins every couple months. Yeah. And that gets a little freaky, but I don't know, man, the whole thing that's so crazy about this is there's no end. There's no light at the end of the tunnel, no goal line to say, Oh, well by X we'll be back to Y it's the uncertainty that just makes it feel totally, totally weird. You're in silver spring. Is that correct? That is correct. Are you glad you're doing this in silver spring and not DC proper? Uh, that's a good question. When I've been to DC, it hasn't been like the streets are mobbed with COVID zombies or anything. It seems kind of <laughs> it seems it seems kind of the same. It's not like the thriller video yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Um, it's 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 the same out here out here and one you know one mile across the city border mm-hmm. than it is back there. Um, so yeah, it feels kind of the same. I think. You tell me what's the vibe like in DC? Uh, very, well. So I'm in the last block of Tacoma Park. Okay. DC side. So like one block south of us is no longer Tacoma Park. So like we're in this like weird medium, not medium, this weird middle neighborhood where like if you go to George Avenue, part of it feels like nothing's changed at all. And if you go to like downtown Tacoma, Maryland, it feels like everything has changed. So it's very block to block in that way. Yeah, sure. Um, the thing that really sucks is we live um, one block from the high school. So clearly since mid-March, there hasn't been high school and it sucks for the kids. And it really sucks for these kids that live across the street because they're acting out in ways that like they wouldn't otherwise act out 
because yeah of everything so they've been like stealing cars and drag racing them wow so all around the neighborhood there's these new like 15 mile an hour um not signs but like sort of i don't know what they're called like barriers okay and those didn't exist a month ago and i don't think that these kids are acting out unless COVID happens yeah yeah the change in architecture is really interesting to me like all like the weird sort of like hash marks on the Mm -hmm. ground at the grocery store and things like that. There are like little tiny changes to our physical environment uh, in which like authorities are trying to sort of dictate public space that I think is really interesting. It'll be weird to see how they stick around because sometimes they just stay forever. Like in DC, it's so sad. Like after 9-11, they put in all those really hideous concrete fortifications down on the mall, which is supposed to be, you know, quote unquote America's backyard. And it just felt like there were these like gigantic cement Legos from the heavens had fallen onto the sidewalk everywhere. And then they just stayed there, you know, like they never, they never took them out. I think that's a huge difference of like when I arrived versus you, like I arrived here in 2010. I always thought that stuff was just for like the never ending protest cycle. And also to keep skateboarders from doing anything fun. Yeah. I think, yeah. Part, well, part of it is that I think it's many birds with one gigantic piece of brutalist concrete or whatever, but the city absolutely. Yeah. Chapter nine 11, the, the sidewalk scape absolutely changed, especially down Pennsylvania Avenue. Oh yeah. Uh, National mall, all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I remember covering the 2012 election and the, just the difference in terms of structures between then and now with the protest. It's a, it's a different physical footprint. Like that's, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to follow the story, which is now happening in the mainstream media all over the place, but the, the slow 20 year, or actually I should say really fast, rapid 20-year militarization of American police. I mean, D.C. is a great (laughs) case study because, you know, when I was in college, there were protests for the IMF World Bank um, meetings that were happening. It was probably like, I think, 97, 98. And that was like one level of like new kind of military arsenal. Yeah. And then uh, the protests, the counter-inaugural protests for when George Bush won a second term. Mm they brought out these like tank like trucks i was like where did these come from and every yeah every year it just ramps up more and more so clearly the military needs a place to to put all their toys when they don't have wars to fight and well you when they don't have the wars American to fight police. that's funny yeah uh, well yeah right you mentioned well, I, you didn't mention any of this you write for the washington post where are you in the post building on january 20th 2017 oh great question um i was actually at the post that okay. day because i was down on the mall writing about um, the music at the inauguration itself. So I was down there at the very earliest hours when he gave the American carnage speech and yeah. seeing that half full mall, you know, which Sean Spicer famously showed the doctored photos lying about later on. Um, that was wild. I went back to the newsroom to write about things for a little bit. And then there was going to be some more music that I was trying to see later in the afternoon. But during the time that I was back at the newsroom, you know, one of the cars outside of the building got mm-hmm. lit on fire. I actually was on the corner when Richard Spencer got punched in the face. Like I saw that happen. <laughs> um, it became a meme later on where people said it to music over and over again. What's your favorite um, ones of the memes? Um, I remember really liking the Depeche Mode one. Oh, which song? Personal Jesus? <sighs> I know. <laughs> just can't get enough. I think it was just can't get enough because yes. it had that nice rapid beat. Because all these memes were basically showing him being punched over and over again, like in a hypercut of the of, to the rhythm of the song, right? I gotta go with if Whitney's I remember correctly. Uh, I, version of "I Will Always Love You." 
Oh, was it in slow motion? No, normal. It was just like they normal speed. They oh, okay. like used all forty seconds of it versus the like five second cuts. That's cool. Yeah, oh, cool. when she hit the big note yeah. and then the punch. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. I imagine I just transferred my mind to the music video, which I think is like Kevin Costner saving Whitney. And it is motion, right. It is. Yeah, okay. Sorry, my brain conflated these two things. So anyway, sorry. So yeah, anyway, that's where I was the the day that all that went down, and um, it was it was a, a wild wild day in the city. Well, the reason sure. why I asked that is because I. I, the, I covered, this is a very not humble brag, um, I covered like 10 inaugural balls and inaugural events for 2013. Oh, right. And I, for Huffington Post, and I, I covered like one thing for 2017 at the uh, Native American Museum. So right. I was down there after, I'd say like 6 p.m. or something like that, and mm-hmm. I intentionally wore all White Sox gear, Chicago White Sox gear, over my like tux because i wanted people to know i was on that side of history and not just like i'm going to party you know what i mean anyways wow, yeah um I, I i just the the amount of security was there was ramped up so dramatically from four years prior my wife was in the same building as you uh on uh, earlier in the day and the, the way she described it it's, it seemed like there was intentional corrals like before there was a reason to have a corral does that make sense oh sure yeah they were absolutely prepped 100% the police were for sure was that they want to make they want to make use of all this stuff that they've bought you know sure um I don't know why I, w- I didn't want to talk about any of this I don't not want to talk about this stuff but I didn't think we'd talk yeah. about anything like the this. other part about the ramp up security at the balls though uh in 2017 was I think there were just less of them as well like obviously when Obama won both times it was mm-hmm. absolute super party time and every musician across the country oh yeah and perform so there was a lot to do and i remember i can't remember if it was that night or the night before the inauguration i I attended a ball out at national harbor that like the sort of like half remains of the beach boys performed at and i remember thinking yeah the security is ramped up big time here but i also just wondered if there was less events to be protected if you will maybe that's fair yeah that's absolutely fair i don't know though it's yeah it's so oh i sound like such an old person the more things change the more they say the same and, I, and I, my quick aside my, my final aside on this is i bet the beach boys are the only band that could perform at any inauguration and be accepted with open arms well there's kind of like two warring factions you know yeah. there's like the mike love beach boys and then brian wilson does his solo stuff but and i'm assuming like you a, saw the mike love beach boys correct uh, yes 100 yeah correct yeah do you think but yeah it is sorry please go ahead no, I was just going to say, definitely, like, to feel like the nation was taking a dark turn and be hearing, like, Surfing USA it was absolutely jarring, for sure. Yeah. Do you think that what, – what's a bigger sin, the way Brian Wilson's handlers have treated him the last ever, or what's going on with Kanye currently? Wow. Well, who – in terms of sin, we mean the sins of the artists, the sins of the people who are the people that are clearly surrounded uh, someone that's incredibly talented that is not all there. Look, yeah, wow, that's I'd have to think about it. Both of them are dispiriting in, in for different reasons. Um, I mean, I got I would probably have to say, depending on how things shake out, I think I'd have to say Kanye, considering yeah. the fact that we now know that like Republican operatives are organizing his presidential campaign for him it seems far more the repercussions could be far more uh have a far greater impact on the the fate of the nation than you know the mishandling of 
the Brian Wilson catalog. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, dispiriting in both counts for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about positive stuff with you, but everything that you've written recently and the zine that you gave me, thank you for that, by the way. Not a oh, lot of positivity in there. Oh, really? Yeah, think about it. Like you wrote about the Dixie Chicks. Sorry, the Chicks. Not a positive narrative. It's not. It, you wrote a positive review, but like it's a it's a divorce album, you know? Yeah, it From is. And props group- to them for making. And props to her. I mean, to Natalie Maines, the main chick for. Uh, for like making the record that I think she needed to make as a human being. You know what I mean? Like I oh, felt yeah. I, it could have been all like, it could have been 12 tracks of Gaslighter, which is the title track, mm-hmm. which kind of speaks to like, maybe like a larger sort of me too moment idea. You know what I mean? But even that song is kind of very much about her divorce. And I was pleased to see them make such a personal record yeah. when like global, the global eye is, is watching them and, this well, in that review, cool. you mentioned that, like, who is this for? Because it's yeah. not going to be on country radio. <laughs> right, right, right. I still haven't figured out the answer to that question, other than people who are already Dixie Chicks fans, in which case, I guess, I don't know if that makes it, like, less risky, like, more worthy of applause or not to make mm-hmm. this really personal record. But they made, like, a really pop-leaning, high-sheen, Taylor Swift esque kind of sounding album which leads to and your other recent review which is the taylor swift record not a super happy record which yeah didn't sound like a taylor swift record right although i argue that it kind of does i mean a lot of reviews that i read that really kind of um bummed me out with were saying like this isn't a pop record like this is her indie record and it just seems silly to me for people to get so hung up on genre tags which is something that Taylor knows how to manipulate. She mm-hmm. definitely, like with, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Red or 1989. I think 1989. She said, I'm not a country singer anymore. You know, I'm a pop singer. And it's yeah. like, well, you, you kind of have been already. You know what I mean? Like, it's like just changing the name is enough to kind of like, I don't know, get the talk machine working or something. Um, so now everyone's saying like, oh, Taylor Swift made like an indie record. And it, not really realizing that like what the common conception of quote unquote indie is as an aesthetic is basically just like, you know, what, pop folk for middle-aged white people sounds like you know well, what i mean like it's, it didn't sound like pavement or like royal trucks you well, know what I mean? like, well, well that's the thing what is indie exactly it's just like a default term that i think people apply to like i don't know like think about like bunny Vare or uh you know bright eyes yeah. or any of that stuff like that would be if vh1 in the 80s existed in a modern iteration today that would be what gets played on it it's music for like middle-aged white folks and i think those middle-aged white folks like to think that they're that they're part of some kind of cultural underground maybe or some kind of counterculture when in fact it's absolutely like the dominant culture and the fact that taylor swift is making oh no no it's not it's not the dominant culture your other review reason review little baby that's the dominant culture sorry i meant for like for like middle-aged like not really super invested in music oh yeah then i completely agree with you (laughs) like 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 grammy voter types yeah yeah. oh grammy voter yeah 100 percent. little baby is not on the radio at all all of my all of my writing is trying to tell the world that hip-hop rules the planet and is the sound of this century and so forth so um yeah you know what i'm saying i guess like album oriented rock of today Mm -hmm. adult contemporary whatever that is you know Mix 106.5, whatever whatever that is in the 21st century, that's like what the aesthetic of the Taylor record is, which is cool. And like also if you played all those songs on synthesizers, they would sound like 1989 songs, you know, which is also kind of cool. So I like the Taylor album. I think like if you get away from all the genre stuff and just think about it as sound, like when she sort of takes music out of the frame and just lets her voice like be itself, 
it just feels so much more compelling to me. It's so much more interesting. She doesn't sound like she's competing with like these gigantic glossy productions because let's be real. Her voice is like pretty modest, mm-hmm. you know, and she's really inventive with melody and lyrics, of course. But I just like the idea of like a more minimal record from her. So do you great. think that's because it's of the moment or do you think that's because of the, the producer she chose and she also really loved that last Lana Del Rey record and wanted to make a version of that? Yeah, maybe all of the above to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's smart. She's like super shrewd and nothing is like, I never feel like anything we get from her is like pure impulse from the heart. If that even exists, you know what I mean? It's very much like she's thinking about how her audience is going to take it and i didn't say this in my review but i read it in a few others people saying like oh this is a record that she made she made this record because she knew she didn't have to tour behind it you know Mm, she wouldn't have to she wouldn't have to get on stage which i thought was like a pretty good point you know like what kind of music can i make because i'm not gonna be able to take it on the road let me do this one thing that said she could have very easily made like going back to my roots nashville kind of country record and she didn't do that which i thought was cool too do you even know who the hell you are when you're when you start out that young? How long does it take to figure out who you are? I always think yeah, of man. Ricky Nelson when I, or Ricky Nielsen when I think of this stuff, like who he well, I was. Think I, yeah, Sorry, I tried but, to write about that in the review because I thought, like you know, like the time that she sounds most compelling and sincere to me is when she's those first two records when she's a teenager, and if you think about it, those are the last two times she was like an anonymous human being who mm-hmm. could like walk down the street. You know what I mean? And after that, you sort of lose yourself to the public in a huge way so all i kind of gave me a new perspective on all this sort of like nostalgic teenage romance stuff she writes about because i'm like yo you're in your late 20s i think she turned 30 already yeah or it's close close to 30 it's just like yo what are you doing why are you why are you still singing about your crush from junior year and it's like oh that's like the last time you were allowed to be a real human being so these are all things whether intentional or not kind of all came out with this record which i was really into and i'm so glad to like a taylor swift record after really strongly disliking them for the past almost 10 years now. So you didn't like shake it off. No, the last time I really was on board with Taylor was fearless, which was her second record. Okay. Um, I think she might've been 18 or 19 when it came out and it was just pure teenage truth telling. It was great. And then since then it's all felt really, I don't know. I feel like I can just feel like the mathematics happening behind it or something. I'm a hundred percent cool with the mathematics. Like my, some of my favorite stuff of the last two decades when it comes to pop music is like the lady Gaga. I am a robot pop star stuff. Right. But even that, like I am a robot kind of acknowledges Mm -hmm. the artifice or whatever, I guess I, I don't mean to be like, you know, some old curmudgeonly 20th century rockist guy who's like, I need to feel the sincerity and the humanity of it, but I just haven't felt it, you know, with, and I understand that those songs are hugely, catchy and impossible to get out of your head i know that from firsthand experience trying to get them out of my head um but i don't want to listen to them again whereas like this new album folklore is the first time i've been like i'd like to listen to that one more time i wanted to like this record so much because i read your review and i i like you and i here's here's what i really wanted to talk about yeah you are of a dying breed my friend i remember as a kid reading greg cott in the chicago tribune and jim diorgatis in chicago sometimes on a very consistent basis and neither of those men have those jobs and i don't think those jobs exist anymore and you are i'm glad that you're at the washington post and i'm glad uh leor galil is at the chicago reader and like other than that that's about it in terms of like newspapers, like stuff in print and online in the exact same day. Does that make sense? It's a tough field for sure right now. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't take it for granted. So thank you for, thank it you for the sucks. Love. Cause like, but the yeah, thing is does. like, does it matter? Because I'm of a certain age where like that was super important to me, but like I, cause I didn't grow up with blogs. 
I didn't grow up yeah. with Twitter. So right. if you grew up with that stuff, do you care what the main critic thinks or are you sort of the one telling the parents and the grandparents like, <laughs> I'm not joking. Like this is yeah, good no, no, stuff. For sure. Your kids yeah. are all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just read a really cool um, book by the art critic, Jerry Saltz called how to be an artist. And I recommend it even if you don't want to be an artist, if you're just interested in art, because it's kind of about tactics for art making, but also art experience. And he talks about one thing as a critic where he's saying when he writes something, there's like a school of Athens happening in his mind where there, all these arguments are taking place. And I definitely feel that like there are different sides of me that are making different points whenever I'm trying to figure out how I feel about my experience that I'm having with music. But um, another part of that is I also kind of imagine a phantom audience and I want the work to make sense to grandma and grandpa who have been reading the Washington post in print for the mm -hmm. past 50 years. And I want it to make sense to, to my parents. And I want it to make sense to people my age. I'm 41. I want it to make sense to people who are in their twenties and I'd love for it to make sense to teenagers. So they don't feel alienated and want to kill me the way I kind of felt when I was reading print yeah. <laughs> music criticism as a teenager. Um, so to be able to like hit all those marks is really, really difficult and probably impossible, especially when you're trying to write about your exclusive experience with music, which is surprise what all criticism actually is. Um, but for me, it's a puzzle that that is a puzzle that will never get solved and like a sort of goal I'll never be able to accomplish and trying over and over and over again is like a boulder that I love to roll up the hill endlessly. Um, in terms of like following other writers, it's really hard. And now I'm really happy there's this sort of like new um, bloom of people doing these like Substack newsletters. Mm -hmm. And I've found like some great writers who I'm really avidly into. But I'm just thinking like, man, if people are just giving away these things for free, like how long will it go on for, you know, how long will they be able to keep doing it before they burn out or say, forget it, I got to get a job, whatever. Um, well, what so, job are, what jobs are there? There's, if you want to work in music right now, this is a serious right, question. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm in a job outside of it. Like I, sure. I pack it up and go to law school and it's yeah. happening. Like there are writers I know who have said, this is too much. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And they, they bow out and it's a, it's a drag. It's a drag to lose their voices. So at the same time, I, to try and not make myself crazy. I try to not think about that too much because I feel like I'd be paralyzed when I'm yeah. trying to write, but I got to remain thankful and motivated because I'm still lucky enough to have a chance to speak into the megaphone. That is the Washington post on a regular basis. Let's go back to the music side of this, the actual yeah. production of it. Um, I feel like there's a handful of genres that will not benefit from, but from this, but not slow down. And uh, I'd say the vast majority of these are going to be incredibly hurt. Every every metal band I think is hurt by this. Every anything with a big horn section is hurt by this. Anything that yeah. requires like people getting up and every salsa act is hurt by this. But I think hip hop could thrive. I think singer songwriter country could thrive. I think that anything super small, uh, will anything laptop related will thrive in this. Are you seeing anything yet based on COVID when it comes to the next thing, or is it still too early? Um, I don't ever want to predict what will happen, even like in in normal times, you know, of what what shape music is going to take. And I like being surprised, and I love being wrong <laughs> when I predict it's going to go some way and it goes the other way. But what you're saying so far definitely seems to be the truth. Rap music has not slowed down. It seems like, especially DC, where I'm keeping really close tabs on the rap community here um, and rap artists who live here, it just seems like they're putting out music at maybe even a greater clip than they were before, mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
So that's great. But like you're saying, yeah, real time music that requires a lot of people in the room together, man, it's really, really difficult. And it's really, I mean, I think about jazz music where yeah. it really is about being there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Improv- any kind of improvisational music where you're getting it one time only, you know, in a room of people and then it vanishes into air forever. Like, Speaking of air, I know that there's a place, a handful of places in Chicago that are doing jazz shows, but they're not allowing horns and they're outside. So they're wow. in, it's like we're just doing vibes and drums today, guys. And I didn't hear no horns. I didn't hear about that. That's amazing. Yeah, there was, a, there was a New Yorker cartoon. Sorry to quote a New Yorker cartoon, but there was a New Yorker cartoon where there are some horn players in a jazz trio and they had um, masks over the bells of the trumpets and yeah. trombones, which I thought was sad and funny. But I did not know that had actually come to be the case in reality. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I still am really struggling with my indoor shows. Some places are doing them. Personally, I'm against them. I don't want to recommend them to readers just because mm-hmm. I feel like it's immoral to say go get indoors with others. Outdoor stuff that's safer, that seems okay, I guess. But I'm really lucky that I'm not in a position to be saying, check out this show Friday night right now um, because I don't know if I could do it. You know, I do a lot of preview work for The Post, but – um, it appears in the weekend section, which runs every Friday in print. But I've, for that, I've been writing about recordings because mm-hmm. basically like the, the mission of weekend is like things you can do. And I made the argument to the editors that they were down with, which is like something you can do is listening to some new recordings. Yeah. So I've been writing about what music has been happening in the community. And that goes full circle. A lot of it's been rap music because the rappers are just keeping totally busy. And do you think it out. it's irresponsible? I love Local H. They're one of my favorite bands, whatever. Uh-huh. Scott's written some of the best songs, I think, of the last 30 years. But they were the first band to play a drive-in. And now there's a a handful of artists, a a lot of country artists, playing drive-ins. Do you Mm -hmm. think that's socially... Do you think it's okay? Uh, If if, if I had to be the the moral high ground and, and say and deem yes or no with the gavel, I'd say no. Why mm-hmm. take this risk? Why bring people into public and into contact with each other when they don't have to be? If everyone was driving to these drive-ins and staying in their cars the entire time, by all means, go that's for it. That's the point. So that's, but but that's not happening. People exactly. are getting out. You got to go to the bathroom. You got to mm-hmm. go get a beer at the concession stand. And I just don't think humanity can be trusted yeah. <laughs> to, to, to monitor itself that way. And it's on these artists to think about their audiences. Like country music especially has been really bad about it. There were a lot of high-profile concerts that happened that were just like, Concerts at old venue, you know, regular venues where people were supposed to stay six feet apart. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're you're telling me someone, you know, in the quote unquote second row is going to stand 12 feet back from the stage? No way. Um, And and the artists are the ones who are responsible for that. This all comes back to your favorite band, Brandon, Fugazi. (laughs) (laughs) But growing up in the DC punk scene, I learned that caring for your audience and respecting them and treating them like people that you whose well-being you very much care about is like a paramount thing and i just i'm shocked to see so many of these artists feeling like oh well i gotta you know and a lot of times it's artists who don't need the money like there's that chain smokers show that happened mm-hmm. up in long island or whatever those guys are not they can sit back and yeah. chill on their royalties until this is over what are you doing that's disgusting to me i don't disagree i do think that there's no winning in this whatsoever um the closest i could even think of or it's like somewhat okay it hasn't existed but do you remember when flaming lips did that like um never like all day boat show 
like a cruise? No, no, it wasn't a cruise. Like they were on a flatbed boat and like they were playing for people like on the docks or whatever. <laughs> no, I like the, you could just totally be making this up and I'd be like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah. Like that's the <laughs> only thing that I think would be like socially acceptable at this point. Yeah. Like flying in a hovercraft 20 feet sort of the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah like a parade, a parade float that literally floated in the air <laughs> above the neighborhood. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, another thing that's been happening in DC that I haven't covered and I've wanted to, but I just feel it's like I have, have such mixed feelings about it is a lot of these go-go bands have been doing um, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. protest concerts on flatbed trucks, like driving yeah. through the city. You know, uh, I really want to go to one, but like my wife and I, because she's pregnant are like hyper quarantining. We're just like yeah. not messing around with anything. I can't go. And if I don't feel comfortable going, I'm not going to tell readers to go. Like, why would I encourage people to experience something that I think is too dangerous for myself? You know, do you feel so, like you're not doing like you should be, especially in June, you should have been down downtown during the protests, uh, covering the musical component of that. Or is that it's not pointless, but like that's more of a news story than a. No, I disagree, and I really okay. wish I could have been. No, okay. I, and the, the actually the weird sad thing about this whole year for me was at the beginning of the year I sit down with the editors and we kind of map out like what are we going to do this year, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had this big epiphany over the holidays where I was like, music is not this thing that happens in this like kind of fake collective space that we call the internet. Music happens in reality. <laughs> I was like, music is the stuff that happens in three-dimensional space. So like this year, so I was really pumped up. I was going to go do Rage Against the Machine at Coachella. I was going to do Kanye when he was supposed to do that concert with Joel Osteen at Yankee Stadium. I was like really ramped up to do these like real life pieces because I felt like those are the things you might want to read about in 20 years. Not like there'll be a thousand reviews of the new Frank Ocean album, mm-hmm. but not everybody's going to go to all of these events. And if you can go write something really powerful about what happened in this space and time, you know, it might matter someday. So not to like, you know, obviously it's not the by far, even the 1000th biggest tragedy of <laughs> this catastrophic thing that's happening in our country right now. But my whole year was totally tanked because the premise for it was, was absolutely shot down completely. But to answer your question, yes, I absolutely wish I could have been down there writing about the music for sure. Because I think like seeing a YouTube clip of people dancing to crime mob or pop smoke or whatever, that's powerful stuff. But being there in the crowd with people and feeling that vibration of air that everyone is sharing in real time. That's what music is. And I'm, I'm sad. I couldn't be a part of it. You mentioned raging Against the machine. Uh, raging Against the machine is this very odd odd band right yeah for sure because you got a harvard educated guy whose bona fides don't matter whatsoever when it comes to it because he didn't write the lyrics uh whose solos (laughs) whose solos are noteworthy because he plays with the screwdriver but all of the verses sound exactly like beavis and butthead's riff which is not a bad thing (laughs) bulls on parade put bulls yeah bulls on parade put it in your head right now and now think of beavis and butthead's den in it it's the same thing yeah Dude, this, is bad you, this, this is really funny because I used to have this joke, which actually wasn't a joke. It was real. I felt like the value of a good guitar riff could be what I, I call it the Beavis and Butthead test. Like could Beavis and Butthead sing it? Oh yeah. Because that's, it's, it's like reduced down to like a low moving melody that moves around just enough. I felt like those were all the great rock riffs. <laughs> so like you're using it to disparage Ridge against the no, machine. No, 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 no. It's say, not to disparage oh, them whatsoever. Oh, okay. No, oh, okay, sorry then. But he's considered it's the highest like, compliment to me. If Beavis and Butthead yeah. can sing your song, it's like you've you've cracked the code. Oh, here here's a fun uh, uh, party game. What's your favorite artist that Beavis and Butthead like that you would not expect Beavis and Butthead to like? 
Oh gosh. <laughs> to ask me to pull that off the top of the dome is really hard. I'll just but I give have you a mind. Like, you think about it. Please, I will. They love Wilco. When was Wilco on Beavis and Butthead? First album, really? box full of letters off of AM, 95. Really? They play the so video. The, they're like, this rules. That is some overlap that I did not expect. Yeah. They must have been going out when Wilco was coming up, right? Yeah. Um, no, because the movie was 97. And oh I think they, they killed them on the TV show in like 99. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, I was tuned out by then for sure. So it's like, I, um, it's I will think about this for a long, long, long time. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I had checked out by then. Long so Actually, no, that's wrong. Back. The peak Beavis and Butthead was 93, 94, because that had the last Nirvana song before he kills himself, and that's 94. So yeah. That is 100% when I was tuned in yeah. and then pretty much stopped after that. So Anyways, okay. so Raging Against the Machine, they got that guy. You got an amazing drummer who's also been the drummer for the Smashing Pumpkins and Black Sabbath, who plays like... Right who plays like an ACDC drummer, which is also super simplistic, but um, just amazing. You have a bassist yes. that wears his bass super high, which is a style all of his own. And you have Zach De La Roca, someone who is both uh, incredibly charismatic, that has influenced a, an entire generation of um, rappers and uh, singers, who who's... Not, who who has his heart is on his sleeve and he's always on the right side of history, but some stuff is just boiled down to in a way where it's it's almost ignorant to the complexity of the situation. Does this make sense? Uh, I I I hear what you're saying. You don't have to agree. Yeah, I, know I hear you. I hear you. Okay, I hear you. And here's the thing: they're on a major label their entire career. Exactly. And uh, okay, come on. No, yeah. <laughs> Do you, so do you want my what I was trying to write about them? Do you want to hear yes. the questions I was hoping to answer? Okay. Yes. Grew up a gigantic Rage Against the Machine fan, but then quickly dropped them when I discovered punk rock, aka the real stuff. Sure. And I remember like debating a kid in high school and being like, "How can they rage against the machine when they're a part of it? They're yeah. on Epic Records." You know, um, I felt very, very smart as a, as a high school sophomore whipping out that phrase against a um, fellow student of mine. Uh, that said, as time went on and distance was created between you know their their sound and my life, uh, I really really began to appreciate them on a totally visceral level because like you're talking about, as far as like the three you know uh, instrument instrumentalists mm-hmm. go in the group, it's just unbeatable, man. It's so good. And I reviewed the Prophets of Rage, which was the reunited Rage Against the Machine with Chuck D mm-hmm. and Be Real from Cypress Hill. And it was just so conflicting because it was such a gross, strange cash in. But those riffs are like deep tissue massage. Oh, yeah. They are, they're so, so good. And I just haven't heard a band in my life that plays like that. It's so, so awesome. Um, so I was just really like conceptually, I was so against it, especially because it was before it was while Trump was running. And this made me incredibly angry. Tom Morello, while, while Trump was on the campaign, you know how he like flips his guitar up and he has a message on mm-hmm. the backside of it. When he flipped his guitar up while Trump was campaigning, it said nobody for president. Okay. Yeah. Which to me is a message of don't vote, don't participate. You know what I mean? Like you feel disenfranchised. You should, the system is alienating, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that was so fucked. And then a year later when Trump wins, he flips the guitar up and it says, fuck Trump. Well, no dude, like you don't get to do that. You don't get to say nobody okay. for president. And I, this and is where I agree with you completely. And that's why their last big thing when they were in the original incarnation, the Pitchfork review that just ran, I loved it. It was at the 2000 DNC. Right, exactly. Come right. on, guys. Yeah. You know yeah. how much yeah. the Dems lost Florida? 
you fucking yeah. dicks. Like it's, it's so, I was really, really excited to go see them to kind of try and sort all this stuff out. Cause like you said, with Zach, like heart of gold intentions, correct. And like an incredible music maker. I don't know if you've listened to his band inside out, the hardcore band he was in before rage. And if anybody's listening, hasn't checked out inside out, please do it. They're so, so good. I just got back into them this summer unrelated to rage for whatever reason. It's a sideways remedial hardcore phase I'm going through, which I'll have to explain in another podcast. But Inside Out is so dope. And I was like, man, I really wish these concerts could have happened because I want to try and find some kind of peace with all these conflicting things we're talking about. I don't think there is peace here. I think maybe that, not. Maybe not. And I think that, like, there, you could be, your heart is in the right place, but you're still an idiot. Killer Mike's a great example of that. And the reason why I'm thinking of Killer Mike is because the only two things that Killer Mike has done in the past like decade in terms of new music have been on Run the Jewels records. Right, right. And Killer Mike oh. and, like, did that whole NRA thing and then like completely backtracked a bit, realizing, like, oh, shit, I was used. Right, right. Hence right. my... I, wonder, hence I mean, this may be... Right. Not to try and tie this together with Taylor Swift, but <laughs> I do wonder what fame does to people. Um, I met Zach De La Roca one time uh, in 2004. This is not... We're going to talk about not humble bragging. Here we go. Uh, my band was playing Coachella, and the day before we drove out to India, we went to this like vegetarian diner in like Silver Lake, and mm-hmm. there, sitting alone, is Zach De La Roca. And I was like, yo, come on, let's go say hi to him. And my bandmates... I shouldn't blame them because we were always like this whenever we saw somebody famous. We were like too cool for school. We're like, we're not going to be that lame group that goes over and says, hey, will you come see our show tonight? Like, we'll be we'll be chill about it. So respect my bandmates for that 99% of the time. But this night, I was like, yo, you're not going to go meet this guy? Like, and go say hey? So I ran out to the car and I got our new single that had just come out to give it to him. And in the most baller moment of my life, he's like, Oh, I already have this. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, thank you for making my whole life. I'll be able thank to talk you for I'll lying to, to me. I'll be able to brag about this story uh, on a podcast in another 15 <laughs> years. Um, but it was super sick. I mean, he was super into discord stuff, so I don't oh, doubt it. Cool. Actually, I, I, he was like really into like the warmers, this band from, I remember him like writing about or talking about the warmers and Rolling Stone in 97. And I was oh, like, this is crazy. Um, so that was super dope. But I was asking him, I was like, what are you doing? Like what's been happening? And he just seemed like, and this is me projecting who knows what onto like a two minute conversation, but he just seemed kind of like, Oh, nothing much. You know, like I'm writing a forward for a book about Nas that someone's writing. And I was like, Oh, are you making any music? He's like, no, not really right now. I'm just trying to like, you know, chill out or something. And I just thought like, yeah, man, like, and I felt immediately bad because that's the question that every single person asks him, right? Like, why aren't you making music? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I think when the whole world's watching you, like Taylor Swift, like Zach DeLaRocco, like whoever you are, it just, that that makes these people way different than us. Oh, I, I listen, I, I agree to a point, to a point. Here's, here's the difference. Bowie, right? One of the biggest stars mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, what does he do? He just picks up a persona and drops it, and then he just goes and plays with synthesizers in Berlin. Like, do that. Like, you don't just go somewhere no one knows you. There's still lots of places in the world where no one knows you. Sure, but maybe he doesn't want to be. Maybe just yeah. I guess a good question. I guess I'll have to ask somebody that next time. I'm like, in situation. you don't have. That's the thing. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And if you want to do it and feel like there's public pr- pressure on you, that's a lie. It's only right. if you want it to be, man. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, what I didn't get the sense from talking to him, and again, this was like a th- like three minutes in a diner or whatever. But I didn't get the sense that it was like I'm burning to oh, get no. this music out, but I'm too freaked out by the world. You know no, what I mean? No, no. It just seemed he just seemed contented to not have to worry about it. I just 
I thought that he was working on a solo record for like a decade. And I that's true. I think, think that, that Trent Reznor was a part of it at some point. Yeah. And that to me is super disappointing because like that to Reznor is the least fail driven guy and probably biggest success story from that first generation of Lollapalooza artists that sure, like, yeah. it's not sad to still listen to new Nine Inch Nails music. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's not like it's good yeah I, I hear you i hear you and you okay, can't listen, say that for the majority of those artists well here's something that you can think about while i think about beavis and butthead for the next time we get together here's something for you to think about and you can answer my question imagine if tomorrow you didn't have to do anything <laughs> yeah. imagine if like your life if you were set on money everything was cool you know what i mean you didn't and like your friends are going to love you no matter what and your family is supported and everything is super cozy are you going to go put yourself out there and like take risks and be weird? I don't, and I, I would think, yes, I'm an artist. I have to. Um, but I just don't know. Cause I, I can't, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to like really picture what it's like to have. Chris, I've been doing this for 12 years and of. no one gives a shit and I'm being weird. You know what I mean? Like, of course I would still do the same thing. <laughs> no, but I'm saying maybe you wouldn't if the whole world had expectations and was coming at you and having critical conversations about you on podcasts. No. Like you might just, be, here, no, you no, might no. just be like, why bother? I'm just going to stay here and enjoy my life. Or totally I'd be realistic of, I already got those checks who cares and also yeah right that's what i'm saying no no the whole world thing makes it seem like it's the whole world the whole world is affected by covid19 the whole world cares about that the majority of human beings do not know who i am period and the only and a lot of the ones that do would only know me with these three guys surrounding me on a stage okay it's all perception man I mean, Bowie. Right, now now back I'm, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about that and Beavis and Butthead now. Bowie used to walk around New York for the last like two decades of his life when he lived there with a Greek newspaper. Not because he read Greek, but because whenever somebody saw him, I was like, "Is that David Bowie?" He's like, "Oh no, that guy's reading a Greek newspaper. That can't be David Bowie." I didn't know that. That's really cool. Like that kind <laughs> of like lived like that. What if Zach DeLaRocca was reading a Greek newspaper at that diner, and I was just too uh, oblivious That'd be cool. to even? I just, I just, I just blew up a spot anyway. <laughs> That'd be great. I didn't even notice. I think I'm so anti-rage right now because of that Pitchfork review, and I watched Bulls on Parade this weekend for the video for some reason, and thinking about how much money was spent on the like fake protests within the video is just... Right. <laughs> so... I have to confess that I don't even know what you're talking about with this Pitchfork thing. I've been kind of offline for the past Got two it. weeks. Did so they, Pitchfork's they been do doing these like Sunday reviews of albums right. that aren't in their catalog, so they did Which the one did they do? Battle of Los Angeles. Ah, uh, okay. Who wrote it? Don't know. Do you remember? Nope. Okay. And I refuse I to give Condé Nast any more. No, I, I just don't know. There we go. I'll go. I'll go check it out. Maybe. I just, I like the little anecdote about them playing the 2000 DNC because I completely forgot about it. And knowing yeah. how close that election was, it's almost yeah. sinful. It's like you almost caused 9-11. You and Bud Selig, the, <laughs> professional, the Major League Baseball Commissioner. Oh, all right, my man. I love the wild claims. You come with the wild claims every time, and I appreciate it very much. You're the only one. <laughs> um, people could read you in the local alt weekly called the Washington Post. Um, yep. You do you like the catchphrase? Um. Yes. Are you saying that because you want to keep your job, or do you like no, the catchphrase? I like it when. Okay, here's what I feel about catchphrases. They have to be lived up to. So I think they're good when the the phrase itself alone in isolation is righteous. It is, and I think it's and, and I think it's a cool thing to put on your paper because if you're not living by it, 
then your fraudulence is there for everyone to see. So I am appreciative for it in that way. Like there was a similar uh, scenario when Mayor Bowser deemed a portion of 16th Street Black Lives Matter Plaza mm-hmm. and wrote the words Black Lives Matter on the street, but then two days later had to explain while she, why she wasn't interested in defunding the police. Yeah. And I think it's just like, well, guess what? You're going to have to answer that question all the time now because you've painted it in big yellow letters on 16th Street. You have to live what you say. So I'm really appreciative or I'm grateful for the slogan in that sense because it – and of course, the Washington Post is not one hive mind. We are a bunch of individuals – working for what is perceived as a collective good. And, um, and I just, I think it's cool for each individual to have to think about what it means and try to make their work. Do you miss the office at all? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. There's great camaraderie there. And I, there's people that I love there so dearly like family and beyond. So yeah, I miss it tremendously, tremendously. All the questions I have now are too personal to ask on a recorded format, so I won't do that. So I want to thank, (laughs) I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for the zine too. Oh, thanks, man. I'm glad you liked it. I did. Um, it was really like it was like it suited the winter vibe, and then it was like it, this is a weird thing to say. It fit COVID really well. Okay, cool. Like, at, but then by the time the George Floyd uh, murder happened, it was like, oh, this is an appropriate thing right now. I, I don't. This is this is. Uh, let's. I'm gonna wait to talk to him. Right on. Well, I've got I've got more uh, more zines coming soon. Cool. New issue coming out in a couple weeks. I'll send you one in the mail. And I liked your little baby uh, little. I'm so wet. Little baby uh, profile not that long ago, and I think it's crazy that dude spent two years in jail, and it's like just glossed over. Like he's completely over it. That he's completely over his jail term, or like. Well, it's just like it's like the things that the majority of people know about him isn't that. Oh, really? I feel like I read that in every review and profile and I didn't want to like amplify it too much. Oh, okay. No, I think of of him. I think of him as like, you're the number one guy right now and you have the anthem of the protest movement right now. Yeah. Great. Okay. But maybe that's just because it's (laughs) maybe that's because it's like the summer of 2020. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have found that like people, when rappers have criminal pasts, that really gets foregrounded in the narrative. And unless I just feel like it's like, I don't want to be reflexive and just parrot that narrative, especially sure, if it's sure. like if, if, if their whole life goes into the music and they've had an experience in the criminal justice system. I don't want that to be the one thing that readers take away from, which with the Washington Post readership, a lot of them will, you know, and think like, oh, yeah, this guy was a criminal and they don't get past that. Yeah. Um, so well, then you did a very you. good job of uh, of burying that. I, it, aspect. It, it, it was in there. It was in the story for sure. It's but, like um, the eighth graph. Do you think? Well, do you think it should have been higher up? I feel no. like I don't know. Like, no, not at all. Yeah, okay. No, all right, okay, not at all. Yeah, but I mean, also I think like it's... I did not read the Rolling Stone cover piece about the guy. Oh, you should. It's actually very, very good because the writer holds him uh, to the fire on some points, which is like something you never see in gigantic profiles because so many pop stars are reticent to talk to the press that like, when it finally happens, the starstruck nature of the profiler is just kind of like. Yeah, lobbing softballs all day long, and this writer did a great job of like really pressing him on some of the points he was making in song and in conversation. It's fantastic. That's Definitely great. Check it out. Yeah. So you will read the Rage Against the Machine <laughs> Pitchfork review, <laughs> and I will read the Little Baby cover story from Rolling Stone. We've really turned ourselves on to some underground publications uh, during during this conversation, haven't we? Uh, there are no jobs anymore, and no band will ever perform live again. Thanks for taking time to do this. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>